for far too many people in prison to keep them there. Um, there were so many people in prison that it would take 200 years to go through a traditional prosecutorial process and um, and treat all of these cases in a traditional in a traditional sense. Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Right along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mangan, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. What do the Great Resignation, Workplace Burnout in Medicine, and Tribal Justice in Rwanda have to do with each other? Well, it turns out quite a bit. Our guest today is Dr. Robin Short of the Workplace Peace Institute in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Short is a mediator, peace builder, author, publisher, and educator, and she even has expert knowledge in 15th century European history. Join us as we explore the fascinating pathway of her career interests and how they translate to the modern workplace in healthcare and beyond on Journeys in Medicine, starting now. Robin, welcome to the show. Happy to have you. It's Friday afternoon. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Robert, we're just going to start today. Tell us a little bit about the two of you. You and Keith had met uh, at a meeting recently in Dallas. Um, tell us a little bit about your business and how you got into it. Sure. So Workplace Peace Institute is an um, organization systems design and research firm. What we're really interested in is supporting organizations in building workplace cultures where all people can thrive. We know that when people thrive, businesses thrive. So we are really, truly in the human potential business. And um, I came to this work through a conflict resolution lens. Um, but even before that, I actually was working in corporate America um, in marketing communications. And for the first 15 years of my career, I, that's what I was doing. I was working in strategic branding, uh, communications, social media, et cetera. And as I, I, as I matured in my career and got into more leadership positions, I started getting really, really interested in the humans I was working with and why getting work accomplished was so challenging. And so much of my time was spent um, supporting people in conflict supporting people in interpersonal relationships, supporting people in their own emotional regulation as it related to client um, experiences and project deadlines and, you know, having to execute on um, decisions that they maybe didn't think were creatively or strategically the most interesting or best decision. So as I grew in my career, what I was really doing is working with people. And that started getting increasingly more interesting and curious for me. So I went back to, I had a, um, I've always been super interested in um, human behavior. I have an undergraduate degree in psychology. My first master's is actually in 15th century European history, which really right. specifically 
<laughs> is about all the conflict that was happening in the Reformation yeah. and the Tudor family and how if I can't get my way, well, I'll just chop her head off. And um, and from there, I went into education, went into marketing, and was always just super focused on how we humans struggle to be in relationship together and get work done. So in 2012, I went back to um, SMU and got a master's in conflict management and dispute resolution, really out of um, a little bit of personal boredom in my life, curiosity, growing leadership skills, but I had absolutely no expectation of um, of changing careers. And I had the opportunity um, to go to Rwanda with a team of conflict resolution specialists to do leadership training with security forces there in Rwanda who were really particularly focused on growing grassroots leadership to um, ensure sustainable peace for years on end. Um, there's a lot of political things going on there that they were wanting to build some grassroots support around. And it was the most exciting, rewarding, personally gratifying, kind of spiritually rewarding experience I had ever had. And I came back to the States and began to build, build my leave marketing plan and um, transition into conflict resolution. So I did that in 2014 and spent the next six years working in um, conflict resolution, really specifically workplace mediation and, um, and uh, conflict resolution training with teams. And what I came to realize is without any exceptions, all of the conflicts that were surfacing at the people level were a manifestation of dysfunction that was happening inside the organization's system. But I only had access to the people. By the time you call a mediator in, things have really gone off the rails. So I was able to help these individuals work through their conflict, um, restore the relationship, build some skills, but without exception, they always left the organization um, mm -hmm. because the thing that was causing the problem still existed. And um, so that was frustrating for me because, um, because I wasn't really able to help restore like a healthy homeostasis inside the workplace. And also a little bit selfishly, I was struggling to grow my business because everybody kept leaving the organization. And you're also a little bit of a secret. Nobody wants to admit our problems have gotten so big that we've had to bring in a mediator. So I stepped back and, um, and at this time I was finishing up my PhD, which is in organization systems design and peace building. And, um, and put together a framework of how I could support organizations in creating workplace cultures of peace and dignity. And the definitions of, of peace that I work with is that peace exists when all people um, have the ability to achieve their basic human needs and when they're able to experience dignity. And dignity is our inherent worth and value as human beings. So what I do now is work with organizational leaders in culture design so that um, we're able to achieve our potential as human beings. We're able to actualize our basic human needs in the workplace. We're able to experience our inherent worth and value. And when we get into conflict, which is a supernatural human thing to do, we're able to do that without causing harm to one another. 
Okay, hold so, on a second, Robin. I, you, you caught my interest with Rwanda. I mean, if I, <laughs> my first thought is you have two people sitting down and they're arguing over, you know, whether or not to expand a division in the company or something, you know, whatever it is, it's important, not dismissing it. But I mean, my God, you come in and you say, well, you think that's bad. Try living most of your life in a country that's in civil war. And almost every single person was involved in this. Can you tell us a little more about this? Because I've read in, in areas like Rwanda, they have a reconciliation process that they've experimented with, which is really just a, an act of uh, confession and then, and then forgiveness. You know, it sounds like religious terms, but there's some similarities there because everybody was involved and you can't, there is no way to punish that many people and you have to move on. Uh, tell me if I'm right by what I've, little I've read of it, but what, tell us more about your experience there. Put a time yeah, on so um, for your listeners who can't see me, I'm nodding my head so hard it might fall off. Yes, <laughs> to everything that you just said. Um, so what happened in Rwanda was, um, what happened in Rwanda as it relates to civil war is happening everywhere as it relates to conflict, which is the um, contradiction of humans to compromise on basic human needs. I can't give up a little bit of my identity in order to experience a little bit of cultural security. I have to have both of them in order to experience the fullness of who I am as a human being. And so that's what was happening in Rwanda um, coming to this huge manifestation of civil war after you know 100 plus years of identity-based conflict. And um, there's so many um, interesting correlations to Rwanda and what we can all take away from this and, and apply it into all aspects of our life. But at this stage, so I was there in 2014, 2016, 2017, and what, um, where they are in their post-genocide um, redevelopment is, um, yes, there were far too many people in prison to keep them there. Um, there were so many people in prison that it would take 200 years to go through a traditional prosecutorial process and, um, and treat all of these cases in a, traditional, in a traditional sense. So what they did was they brought back a um, traditional justice process called kachacha. Um, the Kachacha court system. And it was a restorative justice-ish process um, in which if, if individuals who were incarcerated, so if perpetrators of genocide who were incarcerated confessed to the crime, they would come before a village tribunal. That tribunal would hear the confession and they would put in place a reparation plan. And that reparation plan would have something to do with making right the wrong that was done. So you obviously can't um, erase rape, you can't bring dead people back to life. But you can build houses, restore farms, and um, bring back what was taken from individuals as it relates to their ability to um, support themselves and have security. And there were a lot of nonprofits that surfaced to support this work to bring skills along that would allow 
of victims and perpetrators to work side by side and build relationship. And the other thing that was happening is that the country put together a solidarity plan and they said there are no more Hutus and Rwandas. We are all, I mean, Hutus and Tutsis. We are all Rwandans. We are, we are one people. And, um, and the idea of that is we need a new narrative. We need a third path that we can all walk on and be in unity with one another. Uh, the challenge with that is um, it did suppress voices. And part of healing and part of unity is actually bringing your fullness of who you are and your full identity to who you are. So because the, to- the, uh, the Tutsi um, identity group was the, was the identity group that really was now running Rwanda, it, it suppressed the voice of moderate Hutus. Um, so there's wisdom in the strategy, but there's also a lot of um, under kind of um, underswellings of concern about how long you can suppress a voice before before it's sort of that that kettle begins to blow. And um, so the so the process wasn't perfect, but there was but there was a narrative around unity and forgiveness. I was super curious about the forgiveness piece because um, that's a pretty mind blowing concept. How do you forgive someone for genocide? And to your point, unless you have immigrated to Rwanda in the last 20 years, your life has been impacted by genocide. Even if you were born after genocide, your life has still been deeply impacted by it. So what does forgiveness really mean? And so I interviewed a lot of people to get to the root of what, what does this mean for people? And there was really two narratives that surfaced. One was a very spiritual narrative. And, um, and that was the, it is the narrative that you hear in the media about Rwanda, but it was the much smaller percentage of people. And that narrative was, I see you fully whole and innocent and a child of God you have been restored to innocence. Um, but that was a small population of people. It is a tremendous concept, but it also requires tremendous uh, internal capacity to, to forgive someone at that level. And then the second narrative was, and this was the one that was super common, I accept what happened and I will work side by side with you because there's really no other choice. Um, so, so I think that there's learnings we can bring back to the workplace. We want to have that deeper capacity for, I am offering you a true clean slate and I will work side by side with you past whatever grievance it is that happened. Um, but the second is I'm willing to accept what happened and join in with you on a shared purpose in our work and utilize, you know, communication skills, et cetera, in order to do that. Um, I think there's learnings there that can be applied. So, so in Rwanda, there was, uh, it sounds like there was a cultural background for this type of forgiveness, that this was part of the society. Is that something that can be brought into a society that doesn't have that? I, I question whether, you know, for instance, the, the workspace really has that um, built into it, the forgiveness aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, can it be overlain or is this just something that, that was you, that 
they were able to tap into to create this, this piece? That's a great question. So yes, there was a historic and traditional understanding around it. It's also a collectivist society. So there's much more of a, a instinctual response to harm that uh, what you've done to one of us, you've done to all of us. And so we're all responsible in, in the care of one another. That's definitely embedded in Rwandan culture. The other thing that was sort of unique to Rwanda uh, that really influenced this is all the men were in jail. And right. so what happened was the women rose up to bring forward the solutions. And there's close to 90% women in government positions. So the solutions look really different than how they would in a traditional patriarchal society, which Rwanda was prior to the genocide. Um, but yes, we can, we can bring this to the workplace and we can bring this to Western culture, but it does require a, um, a new mindset. And in order for us to develop a new mindset, we need a lot of education. You know, it takes a lot of education to change our hearts and minds, which are the first piece that comes to changing um, uh, behavior. But I think that that's, that's one of the things that, I, that we do at Workplace Peace Institute is to bring restorative practices to the workplace. And you can think about it, um, restorative practices come through the, you know, discipline of restorative justice. But what it's really doing is relational models of leadership and relational models to, um, to uh, dealing with and approaching harm and accepting that as human beings, there will be harm. It is our commitment to punishing one another or is our commitment to restoring relationship. And the reason that I think that restorative practices or rela relational models of leadership are so critical is that our lack of having that has allowed really bad behavior to persist in the workplace. Mm -hmm. If I am a super high producer, if I am responsible for bringing in significant portions of sales, my behavior will be tolerated because it costs too much to lose me. And that does a tremendous amount of harm in the workplace. So if we were to bring in these practices to the workplace, we, we do, we're not put in this choice of lose the high producing employee uh, um, or tolerate bullying behavior. And what it also does, what restorative practices also does is there's recognition and acknowledgement that those who do harm do so because of other reasons. And very often that has to do with lack of skills development. This is what was modeled for me. This is what I've learned to do. So far, it's been effective, so I just keep doing it. And it's less about intent and more about actual just skills. So it's interesting you studied 15th century European history. Probably the one aspect of that that you didn't think you would help you practically was the fact that there was plague all over the place. And of course, here you are, here we were in the midst of a plague. Uh, when I saw you at the Rotary, it was about... Um, uh, um, the, you, you introduced us with the great resignation. Um, it, it seems to me that maybe the great resignation, although it, it's causing a lot of 
uh, kerfluffle. There's a lot of angst about it. It may not be such a bad thing because it's making people realize that there has to be sweeping changes in the way we, we, we go about business. Have you found that there's better receptivity to the kind of work that you do now uh, than there was, say, three years ago, four years ago? Yes, absolutely. Um, I it, and and it's uh, as my mother would say, not funny, haha, but funny, ironic. <laughs> I began thinking about creating Workplace Peace Institute in the fall of 2018, and was planning. Had just sort of parked it and was finishing up my dissertation, and then it was that was going to be my next big project, which was the summer of 2020. So when I began thinking about creating this, I remember thinking. Uh, this is going to be a big uphill climb. Like I'm selling something people don't even know exists and have no idea that they need. And when I launched my business, it was a pretty obvious answer to the problems that were existing in the world. So I certainly could not have predicted that. And I've begun to start thinking about uh, the great resignation, like a, um, an alert sign, an alert signal on a dashboard you know, when you're driving down the road and you have uh, an alert that shows up on your dashboard, this is cueing you. There's a problem in the system. You should pull over and fix this before your car turns to smoke, right? <laughs> and the great resignation is a big alert sign on the collective organizational culture dashboard saying, we have a problem in the system and here's an opportunity for us to fix this. And what I feel really certain about is um, we are living in an exceptional time in human history as it relates to disruption and the disruption that, that and, and the way that disruption impacts us as humans. So from climate change to political divisiveness to the racial reckoning that's happening, um, with layer in the pandemic, all of these things are um, becoming more than what any individual can really hold on a daily basis. I was having a conversation with someone recently about climate change, and I said, you know, three years ago, I didn't know anybody who had been affected by a flood or a wildfire. I think now we all know somebody who's been affected by a flood or a wildfire, and we know that this is going to continue to be a reality. And, um, and so there's a lot for us to have to hold. And that means that as humans, we're gonna create change where we can create change. There is really nothing that any one of us as individuals can do about climate change, about political discourse, um, about the global pandemic and the pandemics that are likely to come, but I can change where I work. And, um, and I can change what I am, what I do for work. And I can, and what I'm finding is that people are coming to a realization of, and I can live with a lot less in order to do that. So that's what companies are, are dealing with. We are the frontier where people can actually influence change in their own lives. And, um, and so I believe really strongly that organizational leaders are going to have to develop some new skills to support individuals in achieving their basic human needs and dignity needs in the workplace, because we will go find them elsewhere. Do you have concerns that, uh, that um, 
management, ownership, et cetera, will try to barter dignity for salary though. I mean, it is true that people will accept it, but we've also seen people say, no, I'm not working minimum, minimum has to go up. Um, do, are, do people, I mean, it's obviously a strong call, but is it enough to say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna take far less just if I'm treated to be treated like a human being? Um, I do have this concern, and, and, and here's why. The average human being does not have the language to describe what's happening to them. So they don't really have the language to say, when I come to work, I'm not experiencing participation or justice or self-fulfillment or belonging or psychological safety. They feel it. They feel it in their body. Their brain is responding to it. Their amygdala is, you know, going crazy all day long, but they don't have the language to name that's what's happening. So here's what they have the language for. I'm not making enough money for this. Mm. So they leave and in that exit report, in that exit interview, they say, I left because of money. And it really wasn't about money. It wasn't about money when they took the job. It was enough money when they took the job. And now it's not enough money. It's not enough money to deal with what I'm having to deal with. So I'm leaving, but they're using language that's putting data out there that says it's about the money right and it's not really that's not really what it's about right yeah so when is part of your process to teach the the intake and outtake people how to use the right language how to ask the right questions yes yes i think there are some real core people skills that leaders need to grow in tremendous proficiency around. And that is, I've bucketed them in leadership intelligences, communication and conflict resolution. So in leadership intelligence, we need leaders who have high proficiency in emotional, cultural, social, and dignity intelligence. They need to be just powerhouses when it comes to understanding human behavior. That is really what leadership is. I understand human behavior well enough to motivate and inspire you and to build the community necessary for us to do hard stuff together. We need communication skills. So we need to be able to have difficult conversations. We need, um, I think, be to be really proficient in um, uh, the nonviolent communication methodology because that's a methodology that really supports our ability to communicate honestly and empathetically. And we need to have a strong understanding of um, conflict styles. So who is on my team and how do they process information? And we also need to have leaders who are very proficient in direct conflict engagement. And in our society, we, very few of us, like unless you went to Montessori school, no one really learned formal conflict resolution skills. So we avoid, we fight, we get passive aggressive, like we do all these really unproductive behaviors to navigate conflict because we just don't know how to do it. And um, the it's amazing when we learn, you know, when you learn anything, you're like, wow, that wasn't near as hard as I thought it was. When we learn how to navigate conflict, it's super empowering and difficult conversations. I have to sometimes manage myself because I'm like, ooh, that's going to be a really interesting, difficult conversation. And I realized the people in it are like, this isn't fun for me. <laughs> I'm like, but I'm like, oh, this is going to be really fun. Um, but it takes a lot of the you know, mystery out of it when you know how to, you know, it's like super mysterious to me how you build a house. 
someone who builds a house is like, oh, this is exactly how you do it. It's not mysterious. Okay. I want to ask you about the great resignation because I've read different accounts of this. Um, some saying it, it's, it's obviously different in different uh, market segments of the economy. I suspect this is happening a lot more than I realize. So my information mostly is coming from what I read or hospitals, which is where, where I work. And hospitals is a different story. The burnout, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, has many, many different factors. And the labor market is completely distorted there because you now have traveling nurses and scrub techs and radiology techs who get paid three or four times as much as the in-house people just to come in for a few months. I don't know even how they back out of that, but that's what's going on right now. Um, give us your take, Robin, of this great resignation. You know, where is it most acute? Where is it less acute? And uh, kind of like a 30,000 foot overview of the data. What do you, what do you see? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing that it is, um, the data is showing that it is most acute in, in healthcare and in hospitality. And, um, and I think the healthcare is pretty obvious why, you know, underpaid and um, extraordinarily difficult in any normal time. And it has been extremely difficult. And um, the pandemic, it, it is deeply sad to me that a health crisis has been politicized. Um, and so a lot of people in healthcare are dealing with both the stress of the, of the actual crisis itself and then the um, assaults of the political nature of it all. And uh, so I think that the crisis, and they're simply, you know, unless you're a doctor, you're simply not compensated well, and certainly not to be dealing with all of this. And, um, and leaders, generally speaking, and this has been super disappointing to me. So I'm going to pause and come back to, I'll pause and come back to what I was about to say is what's been super disappointing to me is that when the pandemic happened, I thought, here is the opportunity for widespread behavioral change. We are seeing widespread behavioral change at the worker level, but we are not seeing that widespread change at the leadership level. Leaders are pretty much saying, oh, okay, um, remote work. Okay, we'll do some remote work exactly the way we always did it. (laughs) So like just some people get to work remotely sometimes And that's about the only thing that changed. That has been really disappointing to me because I think it was a tremendous missed opportunity paired with the worker behavior is changing. So a concern that I have is is that there is going to be serious, serious labor shortages across all industries. And I say all industries because the great resignation is really specifically impacting hospitality and healthcare. Um, two places that are pretty important. Healthcare is pretty obvious why it's important, but hospitality is a place where we actually go for self-care. <laughs> like right. we need hospitality because we need places of retreat. And um, so I think that's going to be super obvious, but the less obvious one that really concerns me is um, Gen Z is a generation that is not interested in this type of culture they will not go to work and experience abuse. They'll just walk dogs for a living. They'll do Instacart. Um, They will do something in the gig economy and patch together a life before they go into the workplace and experience this abuse. Well, we're we're 10 years away from a generation that's not showing up in the workplace 
or a generation that walked dogs for 10 years and is now ready to go to the workplace, but hasn't built the skills to do it. So that's a concern that I have that I'm not really seeing people talk about, but I think is very real. I'm a um, adjunct professor at SMU, and I had this super interesting experience. I teach in the conflict management dispute resolution program, and most of the students, it's a graduate program, and most of the students have been in the workplace for 10 plus years. Because of the, so I'm, I am not used to working with uh, Gen Z uh, generation. So because of the pandemic, um, student, gra- graduating students didn't really have anywhere to go. So they went immediately into graduate school and student athletes missed a year. So if they went immediately into graduate school, they could continue with their sport. So my last class was in October and half the class was Gen Z. And it was this super interesting sort of time in the lab with this fascinating group of people. And what I am real certain of is they won't stay in the workplace. They will not stay in the workplace if it doesn't change. They will do something different. And, um, and I, think we, I think leaders need to be paying a lot of attention to that. Yeah, I think th- people listening may be shaking their heads. Yeah, they'll grow up. That, you know, everybody's like that. But I think if you look at South Korea today and Japan to a lesser extent, it's kind of a snapshot of the future. You have, and there's a lot of data to back this up. I mean, I mean here's a country, South Korea, where when they take their national test day, for high school to determine where they're going to go for college or, um, you know, technical schools, the, the, the planes are actually grounded while they're giving the, the prep talk to the students. And it has to be that quiet, you know, the whole country. This, yeah. I read that. It's just, it's just amazing. And um, there's so much pressure put on these kids who are, you know, like 16, 17, you know, if they don't do well in this, that affects the rest of their life. Um, and then, there's other reasons structurally in the economy, you know, the concentration of wealth and, you know, we can go on and on about that. But, but apparently there is a, a large group of young people who live at home and play video games all day and mm-hmm. it's growing. And yes. it's, you know, I, I think what you're saying is very real, I, you know, cause I can see some people are just, yeah, yeah, not a big deal, but mm-hmm. I think, I think you're mm-hmm. right. It is. They're also that generation, um, is also going into the workplace much later. You know, like if I'm, I'm, I just turned 49 years old. My generation, like we all started working as soon as we possibly could. Like, so most of us had some kind of gig going on at 12 and some sort of legitimate job at 16. And culturally, it's just what we did. Everyone I knew had some sort of job. And um, now, and, the, and we were very middle-class, now middle-class families, really their kids aren't getting jobs until after college. Yeah. So um, they are coming into the workforce reporting to a generation of people who expect them to show up differently than how they're showing up. And um, we're not really preparing the workplace for that generation, which is going to be a large portion of the available workforce in a pretty short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that same thing. I mean, I had three different jobs in high school and it wasn't because I was helping support our family. It just, that's, I wanted to, I I wasn't forced to. uh, I I know it's interesting. It was really cultural. I have thought about it a lot. My parents, my parents, well, I mean, they did say, you don't need that. If you want it, go get a job. 
Um, so I think there was a little bit of pressure to work that's different than how it is now, but it was, a, it was sort of a cool thing. Where are you working? And it was a cool thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And it's just not really on uh, the radar of a lot of teenagers right now. I think school has gotten a lot more demanding as well. I don't think they have the kind yes. of time that we had. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're expected to build up this resume of activities and things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's yeah. Well, we could probably get off track big time on that, but <laughs> um, we'll go ahead, Keith. Yeah. So um, I did want to uh, got us back for the last segment of this to healthcare. Um, you know, everybody in healthcare thinks we're unique. We're, we're obviously not, you, we are both unique and not unique. We're facing the problems and everything, but we've been looking at the concept of burnout for a decade, maybe more. Um, and not just with the staff, it's, it's a good thing that we're now aware of the staff at the hospitals, because I'm afraid that, that some of the providers don't, didn't really necessarily think about nurses for sure, but, but some of the cleaning crews and, and the, 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 uh, food, uh, processors and things like that, we were not aware of. Um, burnout has gone from, um, made a transition from um, your two week to, oh, we understand this is a real deal. Burnout really exists. Uh, and then there are all these wellness things that were offered, but there still is this concept in the wellness thing that somehow we are not doing that, which we're not, but it's still our fault that we're burning out, we being healthcare workers. How do you get the institutions, how do you get the management of hospitals to understand that they have as much to do with burnout as whether or not a um, a doctor goes and gets a a mani-pedi on a Wednesday? Mm -hmm. So, I have so much to say about this. I'm trying to struggle where the beginning of my story is. Um, so I want, to, I'm going to answer that question, but I want to step back and look at the organizational systems. So I have, there are um, about six types of organizational paradigms that I've identified that organizations are operating in. Most organizations are operating in what I categorize as Newtonian organizations. And I use that framing because Newtonian concept of applying force to get movement and the amount of force is correlated to the amount of movement that you get. Stop applying force, stop applying movement. Most of our organizations are designed steeply hierarchical where a small group of people at the top apply force down the hierarchy and um, and, and that is how movement takes place. You don't move enough. We apply more force with a performance improvement plan to get you moving again. So it is um, uh, oppressive and punitive in nature by design. And then we have organizational paradigms that are really categorized in what I call quantum organizations, because in quantum physics, everything is in relationship with one another. I, I know myself in relationship with you. So there is a relational model embedded into a quantum organization where leadership's job is not to apply pressure and force in order to get movement, but rather to nurture, develop, grow, encourage. And they are really um, ambassadors or, or, or um, stewards of uh, organization mission and vision. And they're there to mobilize people toward that shared purpose, which is relational 
and um, seeking human potential in all, in all um, behaviors. So because most of us are operating in a Newtonian organization, the standard experience is oppression, pressure, and in many cases, abuse. You know, when we say toxic workplace, it's toxic because there's abuse going on and a chronic violation of the actualization of basic human needs and dignity needs. And so the definition of resiliency is the ability to return to your natural state quickly. The problem is humans, workers are being expected to return to the natural state quickly and organizations aren't taking responsibility for this is a unnatural state we're asking you to return to. You are expected to continuously come back and behave and perform at high levels in an environment that's suppressing you. So we're going to, because of all these reasons that we talked about previously, the world is so stressful right now. And the cost of living has in, continued to increase and the, and the wages aren't catching up, right? So layer in just all the many things that we've talked about that humans are having to deal with, being able to come back and return to this natural state of productivity inside of an environment that is suppressing your potential is becoming increasingly more difficult and, um, is, is, and is requiring increasingly longer periods of, of, um, of restoration. And so what organizations need to realize is we need to create workplaces that do not burn people out, right? When you are working in an environment, if you think about any place you've ever been where you have felt fully embraced, really honored, your basic human needs are being met, you can do super hard stuff pretty regularly. It doesn't burn you out. It's not the hard work that burns you out. It's the environment in which you're being asked to do it that does. So you know, clearly there, there's some organizations and I work with some where the ones who do actually thrive in this, this hard, hard environment are the ones who move up. They're the ones who are in leadership because um, some people do. Um, yeah. you, know, you know, we had Stanley McChrystal on recently and he was talking about the promotion process in the military. And one of the great weaknesses that he sees is that if you make a mistake, you, you're out. That's how the military works. Um, if you if you can get a little fender bender in a ship in the Navy, that's it. Your command's gone. You know, and that's doesn't necessarily always promote the people who are the best. Sometimes it's just the luckiest. Like even an Olympic athletes who just didn't get injured. You know, right? Sometimes they aren't always the best. It's just circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, how how can we be better about promoting people based on other things besides just performance? Because there are going to be those people who are willing to sacrifice. They'll never see their kids' soccer games because they're always working. And that's what they want to do, you know, and they're out there. Um, there's surgeons out there that, you know, can't even remember their kids' names. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and yet, you know, they're, they're high performers and they're, many of them are very, very good at what they do. And that's what they thrive in. That's what's what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that these people are, are always the best at leadership. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you think about that problem in recruitment, retention, and promotion in companies? 
I think we need to stop looking at leadership as those who are the highest performers or those who are the highest producers, because that's not the role of a leader. Um, The role of leader is to support bringing out the best in the individuals that comprise the workforce to mobilize everyone toward the shared purpose of of the organization. So they're there to be stewards of mission and vision and stewards of people vastly different skill set than um, than the highest performer. I would even say the lead surgeon, now people are going to probably click pause or just stop listening when I say what I'm about to say. So you may edit this out. Maybe the lead surgeon doesn't even need to be a surgeon, <laughs> right? I don't know that the best leadership even needs to necessarily be the subject matter expert. They need to be the subject matter expert of human behavior. Oh, yeah, I, I agree with that. Actually, we talked about that a little bit in the past. Um, you, you'll hear that drumbeat a lot. Clinicians need to run hospitals. Clinicians need to run insurance companies. Um, I disagree. Every once in a while, you'll find someone who can do both. But oh, sure. If, sure. You're, if you have a medical practice, surgical practice, the surgeon should not be spending their time on marketing, um, payroll. Those, you, you have people that specialize in that. They spent mm-hmm. somewhere, sometimes upwards of 10 years, you know, studying to do what mm-hmm. they do and preparing for that. They don't need to be spending time on other things. Um, yep. But I, I see this as a big, big challenge because promotion is a reward in, in companies. It, it works. It's very effective. Um, people like titles. They like moving up. And um, it, this is going to be a tough one to find other metrics to move people mm-hmm. into leadership. And what do you do with a, a software engineer who's just extraordinarily good? You want to keep them there. Maybe you can't keep paying them more. Um, every industry has its individual challenges. But um, what I'm saying is I agree with you. I just, I don't know if I see the clear, What, clear what I think there. is interesting about this, and I, um, I agree with the, the challenge that you're presenting. I don't necessarily agree that what motivates people is upward trajectory in the organization. That has become a motivator because we've designed systems that say in order to be important, you must move up this trajectory. And because most workplaces are operating in that way, I know that if I have upward mobility in this organization, I can exit and go somewhere else and go at that same level. So it's become a mobile, it's become an incentive because it's the facts on the street that we're living with. But I don't think it's the real incentive. What the real incentive is, is you really um, honor and value the contributions that I bring to the organization. And that's conveyed to me both in pay, but also in the work that I get to do. The challenges that you bring to me, the, the depth and breadth of the way my expertise is allowed to be contributed into the organization, um, the relationships that I'm able to build inside the organization, my passion around the alignment to your mission and vision. Those are the things that actually really genuinely motivate us, but we've been put into a system that says you're valued and you are important by where you sit on the org chart. And that will be also equal to wherever it is that you go. And so it's a, it is a, a false carrot in a carrot and stick environment that doesn't really optimize human behavior, but it's the, it's, it's the one we have to be in because it's the one we've designed. So the challenge I think is there are a handful of organizations 
that are operating in this quantum type organization. But because they don't value or even have titles like VP of, it's difficult because if for some reason it's time for me to leave this organization, my resume doesn't reflect what the next job is going to be looking for. And I think that's a real challenge. Yeah. And that, that leads me a little bit to um, what we don't, don't possibly have enough time to talk about. Uh, and that's what kind of metrics do, are we looking at? Because if the only metric we have is how much money a company's making, um, then that's not going to be, you know, then we're always going to go for the big power companies, the Newtonian ones. Um, what kind of metrics are we now looking at to say this is a this is a uh, successful? This is a this is a, a a company that that has a safe workplace. This is a company that that people really can um, live in. We have some hints in it with retention, but even that is not necessarily something that people will will look at. How can we get that message across that the quantum companies are the companies that we really want to have? Mm -hmm. I think it's around, um, you know how Gallup has their Gallup 12 survey that they deploy every, that a lot of organizations deploy year over year. I don't actually think that that's a great survey. I don't think it's measuring necessarily the right things, for instance, and I deeply respect Gallup. I love their research. But for example, there's a question that says, um, do you have a best friend at work? Well, a lot of miserable people have best friends that they commiserate their misery with at work. <laughs> it's like, that's not really- I've, heard, I've seen that on uh, some of your surveys, yeah. <laughs> right. I was always wondering why that question was in there. But. <laughs> right. So I think having engagement surveys that are specifically measuring how well these specific set of basic human needs are being met and how well specific set of, there are real, there are 10 essential elements of dignity. So there's based off of basic community theory, based off of dignity theory, there are really specific criteria of what, um, what needs are necessary for humans. So having an annual engagement survey that's measuring how well each of those are being met will pair very closely with your turnover rate, your voluntary turnover rate. And, um, and what organization, when organizations put in place um, the training, the practices, the programs that support the ability for people to achieve their basic human needs, they will see engagement, uh, they will see turnover go down significantly. And that to me should be the measure of success. We have, we are holding on to institutional knowledge. We are not having to invest a lot of resources and continuously training people. We are building strong culture because we don't have um, a constant and chronic external influence on culture constantly coming in. And, um, and we're building environments where, and this is really, really important, when people experience their basic human needs in the workplace, they naturally co-create. So we're building environments where all of those people who work inside the organization take personal responsibility for it. And, um, and the organization thrives. So I've, I've done a number of these, even college I went to sends these out occasionally, um, but I never see the results. And mm -hmm. if you're working in a company, you kind of want to know how many other people are complaining about um, you know, inventory issues or something else. Right. Um, and that also leads into the problem that a lot of this information is considered, considered proprietary 
a lot of people don't want this getting out. You don't want um, mm-hmm. shareholders even, or the, you know, mm-hmm. CNBC or whomever to know mm-hmm. that half of your employees absolutely hate their job and would leave in the second mm-hmm. if they could. Um, how do you deal with that, you know, as a consultant coming into these companies? Because you want to know and you want to be able to share information, but I'm sure you're restricted in some cases. Mm-hmm. And could there be a possibility where a publicly traded company has, you know, by law has to, um, you know, submit these as, you know, just part of their regulatory mm-hmm. filings and financial filings? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just throwing that out there, but. Yeah, so I believe there has to be radical transparency in order for there to be integrity in the data collection. And um, and so I, I believe that in order to achieve that, you need to convey to uh, the workforce, the folks you're going to be uh, surveying, you will receive the results of this by this date. <laughs> we won't have the answer to what we're going to do about it by that date, but you will hear the results by this date and you will know what actions are in place for us to create these course corrections. I think the data also needs to be collected by a third party so that people can really fully trust the anonymous nature of the comments and that the third party is taking responsibility to really have strong integrity with that um, in terms of um, the uh, that they are collecting data in such a way that preserves the anonymous nature. So if you're if you've got a hundred person organization and you're collecting racial, ethnic, or uh, demographic information, um, gender information, and uh, where role information, you may have just outed the one Asian person. So that person's not going to complete the survey or they're very not likely to be as honest and transparent with the survey. So the third party who's conducting this needs to put measures in place to ensure that the people who are on the receiving end of it, um, that there's integrity and the commitment to the anonymous nature Um, and that it's anonymous, not confidential. People use those words interchangeably and in data collection, it is not going to be confidential. We are going to do something with this data. So transparency, commitment to we will share it with you, commitment to when you're going to know what action steps are taking place. And then I know this is so obvious, do something with it. And the do something with it almost never happens, um, which just makes the whole exercise pointless. Yeah, I remember that show, the uh, the office years ago. That Michael Scott he gets up at, at a meeting and says, "All right, this is going to be the, the free zone for the next couple hours." And you guys just say anything you want. There was no consequences, and the HR lady there has just got this look of horror on her face. No, no, no. <laughs> and of course, the stuff that comes out in that meeting is just just brutal. But um, I'm sure everybody wants to have a moment like that. But it just <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> um, well, we're getting really close to the time here, Robin. Um, I guess uh, they were very close. Just to end things, uh, tell our listeners a little more about where they can learn more about your organization and maybe point us in a couple of things that you read and keep up with because industrial psychology and consulting, all this is, is, a, is a big industry. Um, you know, I'm sure there's people that want to learn a little bit more than just an hour here. Point us mm-hmm. to a few other things we can, we can continue with. Sure. Thank you. So um, definitely people can check out our website, workplacepeaceinstitute.com. There's a resources page there uh, where we're producing um, uh, content on a regular basis around uh, um, relational leadership approaches and organization systems design. And I am uh, 
I read probably more books than I do, um, uh, you know, Forbes. And I mean, I read Forbes and HBR, but I find them somewhat valuable. Um, So I think that um, the best service that we can do to one another as human beings is to become better at being human beings, <laughs> which means strangely, we actually need to learn a lot about our brain and our biology. And we're all running around not knowing a lot about that. So I highly recommend really diving into um, books around neuroscience, books around brain science. Um, Robert Sapkowski is a biologist that um, is incredibly brilliant. I'm reading his book right now, but just picked it up. He has a book called Behave, The Biology of Human Beings at Our Best and Worst. It's a fantastic book that helps you understand human behavior at the neuroscience and biological level, which is, um, it should be common sense that we need to know this. We need to understand why we do the things that we do. And in doing that, it it reminds me a lot of um, a two-step. If someone is a solid dancer, the other person just comes along naturally with them. If one person in a relationship has a really strong understanding of human behavior at the neuroscience and biological level, they will be able to bring others along who don't understand the dance step with them really well. And so I would really encourage people to be really intentional about, about learning about the actual human being. And second, to develop an um, intentional and daily mindfulness meditation practice. Um, and I say that because we're living in this highly, highly stressful world. We're going into these really stressful workplaces and mindfulness meditation, I believe is the single most effective practice for becoming a really well-regulated human being with the stable mindedness and the presence to um, address these chronic um, conflicts that we're dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. That's a uh, same here. We, uh, we talked quite a bit about uh, meditation and the next scheduled guest is actually a very famous uh, neuroscientist from England who's um, had some delays on getting him on, but we're both reading his book right now. So couldn't agree more, Robin. Awesome. That's right. And uh, you may have given us a future guest with Robert Sapotsky. We'll, we'll follow up with him. So He's fantastic and so much fun to listen to. Great. Well, uh, Keith, anything, anything else? No, that's great. Well, our hour's up, unfortunately, Robin. So. Um, <laughs> There's actually a lot more I wanted to ask you. So might have to have you come back in the future. But I'd um, love that. But we will um when we get this episode up, we'll put the links in to your um your company website and some other resources, just as we always do. And for everyone listening, thanks for joining us. We'll see you here next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.